For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. I wonder how many of us in this room could quote that verse from memory. I wonder how many times we've heard that discussed in a Bible class or even in a lesson and a sermon. Without a doubt, John 3.16 is probably one of the most well-known passages of the entire Bible. In fact, we've not only heard it in Bible classes or sermons, we've seen it even on signs held up in football games. People holding up big signs that say John 3.16 and, and everyone sees that sign and they know what verse it's talking about. And so as we come to a study this evening of John 3.16, I'd like for us maybe to, and it would be easy if you're looking at a text like the one in John 3 to think, well, I know that one, I've memorized that one, I've looked over that one quite a few times, and I, I it's funny because every time I approach a passage in the Bible that's familiar like that, I always find something new to challenge me, and, and something new that that proves how much I need to grow. And I'm hoping that we can all grow as a result of what we're looking at in John chapter 3 this evening. Uh, I'd invite you, if you haven't already, to turn your Bibles there. I was giving David a hard time before he left. You know, he lined up these series of sermon lessons and sermon topics, and then he decided to leave the country yesterday. So uh, he left me on Sunday night to... God the Father. So we're going to be skipping around in a lot of scriptures because uh, we could study for weeks about the attributes of God. What I'd like for us to do is to look at John 3.16 and ask the question, what can I learn about God the Father in this text? You see, often we approach John 3.16 and we think, well, what can I learn about Jesus? And that's because John 3.16 shows us that he was God's only begotten son. In other words, there this morning we found out he's a once-for-all sacrifice. Well, the same is true for his sonship. There's no other Jesus important. And sometimes we come to the text and we look for, well, what does this mean to me? What do I have to do? And we see that in order to be saved, we need to believe, have faith in Jesus. And then we know later on in the New Testament that that faith leads to an obedient lifestyle, submitting our will to his. And that's important as well. But tonight I want us to look for what we can find out about God the Father through those verses. And so, if you would, please read with me John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And we're going to look at those two scriptures and see if we can call out some attributes that will remind us of characteristics that God the Father displays throughout Scripture. Now, many of these things that we'll look at tonight will be fairly basic, they'll be fundamental, but, you know, it strikes me that most of the beautiful and profound principles in the Bible are very simple. Uh, usually, for me, it's not the complicated parts of the Bible that I can't understand that challenge me, although they do challenge me. Uh, the big challenge for me is living the parts I do understand. And so the challenge when we come to John 3, 16 and 17 is not understanding what it means, but just living by what it means. And so as we begin, uh, we look and understand that there are many in our society around us that have a kind of a convoluted idea of who God is. In fact, some of our most popular new television shows and movies are ones that portray God in, in 
even comical fashion or, or in a, a different fashion, going for some shock value. And so we get all these different messages. And so it's good for us to go back to God's word and see some attributes of God that we can find there. The first thing we notice in John chapter 3 and verse 16 is that God the Father is one who loves. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Well, we're told several times, and especially in the book of 1 John, that, that God is love. And if you haven't ever done so, I'd invite you this week to take out 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that chapter description of love, and look at all of the statements that are made. Love is patient. Love is kind. And in the place of love, just put God, because God is love, and those attributes of love describe our Father in heaven. And so we can see when we replace love with God, we can see that God is patient. God is kind. And we go through. And, and if you really want a challenge, we could put our names in place of love. And that would definitely be a test to see if we are patient, if we are kind. But that's something that probably most of us would think is, is common knowledge. God is love. But, but notice the way the verse is constructed. God so loved the world. God loved the entire world that he gave his only begotten son. We see later on in the verse that if you want to have eternal life, you have to believe in Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. But God's love was for all the world. And that shows us that God has love that's unconditional. And so I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. As we consider unconditional love, it's hard to talk about unconditional love without focusing on the words that Jesus uses in part of his Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, and we will be flipping through a lot, so I hope you have your Bible with you, and I hope you don't mind flipping back and forth. But we'll begin Matthew chapter 5 and verse 43, as we find out that our Father loves, and He loves the world unconditionally. Let's, let's listen to the words of Jesus as He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, this is a difficult command, loving your neighbor. But as we think about Jesus speaking this, imagine who is talking here. Think about what Jesus is going to endure through his life. John would tell us in the first chapter of his gospel that the word became flesh, dwelt among us. In verse 11, and he went to his own kind and they did not receive him. In other words, someone from the beginning, as we know Jesus was, someone through whom all things were made, went to his own kind and they did not receive him. Jesus was not going to be well received. In fact, when he would send his apostles out later on, he would say, do not be surprised if the world hates you. It hated me first. And as we look at Jesus' command for unconditional love, we see that it's coming from someone who knew the meaning of persecution. Someone who understood what it was like for an enemy to be against him. And I can't imagine anyone who could say, well, you don't understand my situation. If you just knew what this person did to me, if you just knew what this person said to me, then you'd think differently. Anytime I'm tempted to be upset with someone, and I read this passage, and I think about this concept, loving your neighbor, and I just think, well, it just doesn't apply in this situation. You just don't understand. I imagine probably the most uh, 
powerful example of unconditional love I can think of. And that is Jesus himself on the cross asking the Father to forgive those who had crucified him. Even on the cross, he was asking for forgiveness for those who were tortured and even killed him. He knew that a few days later, on the day of Pentecost, there would be those who were so hurt and that were so cut to the heart by what they had done, they wanted to do anything to be in a right relationship with God again. And he knew that eventually, men like Paul, who had spent so much of their lives as a zealous Jew, even persecuting those who were Christians, he knew that once they saw and understood the gospel, once they were converted, they would want to be in a right relationship. And we see that God's love is unconditional. It's open to all the world. Now, whether all the world decides to accept Jesus, whether all the world decides to submit to God's will is another thing. But God's love is unconditional. He loves even those who don't love him. Verse 44, he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I don't know about you, but I find it difficult to hate someone and to pray for them at the same time. If you haven't ever done that before, uh, you might want to try it. I, I've, I've tried it, and it's difficult when you're upset with someone to pray for them and to really be concerned with them. And I think that's an interesting piece of advice that Jesus gives. And look at the connection he makes in verse 45. He says, Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. He connects unconditional love with your Father who is in heaven. In verse 48, he would say, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, usually when we think of perfection, we think of getting all the answers right on a test, and that's part of what that word means, but the expression here indicates completeness. Something is perfect when it's complete. And so if we make our love complete, that means we're not just partially loving people, we're not conditionally loving people, we're unconditionally loving people. Our love is open not only to those inside our circle of friends and our family, but to those all around us. That flies in the face of everything we learn in today's society because it's difficult to grow up without developing a conditional a response to love, a conditional idea of what love is. Two children on the playground are there and one decides he'll share his toy with the other one if he does something in return. When two people are dating, going through high school, a boy will say to a girl, well, I'll go out with you if Someone in the workplace says, well, you know, I think we can make a little bit of extra money and, and you and I could be, could be really close. If you're just willing to do this, I think we could get ahead. And all of a sudden, people will like you if you're willing to do something for them. And you might have a coach that loves you if you're willing to perform well enough on the field. You might have a teacher that loves you if you get the right grades or an employer that loves you if you bring results. But if one day you strike out or if you make a bad grade on a test or if one day you just blow a project, that love isn't there. That, that admiration, that respect that you had, had been looking forward to isn't there. And if you'll remember, the coaches and teachers and employers that stick out in your mind as being the best are usually those who have an unconditional kind of relationship with you. The best teachers are those who love you even when you don't always make the best grade. The best coaches are those who love you even when you don't always perform well. If we're going to show unconditional love, we can't keep that if clause in there. We've got to show the kind of love that Jesus commands us to, not only to our friends, but also to our enemies. I mean, he refers them not only to tax collectors, 
but also to Gentiles. And if he was talking to mostly a, a Jewish audience, those would have been uh, two categories of people they don't want to be grouped in. And he says, even the tax collectors do this. Even the Gentiles do this. And so he's giving them a not-so-subtle reminder that they need to love even those who persecute them. I think it's important that we realize the sequence of events in which things take place. Earlier, we looked at Romans chapter 5. And if you don't mind, flip over there with me. We'll look at a few verses that Paul writes that shed some light on the unconditional love that God has for us in sending His Son. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 6, Paul writes, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrates his unconditional love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were ungodly, we were given the ultimate sacrifice. While we were wicked, we were given the best gift that we can imagine. The Father shows us unconditional love. He loves the world. And as those who are representing God to the world around us, we also need to show unconditional love. I heard recently of an interview with one of the sons of former President Ronald Reagan. And those of you who know much about the situation with uh, former President Reagan know that uh, he is having difficulty even at this point remembering those who are close to him and his family. And a touching story was relayed to me because his son had been spending time trying to think of, of what he could do to make himself feel better about this situation. President Reagan is in advanced stages of Alzheimer's and he was having difficulty even remembering who his sons were. And so one of them went in one day and he had never been very affectionate with his father. They hadn't hugged very much, but he decided, I'm going to give him a hug. And so one day he wrapped his arms around him and he hugged him and... Uh, Mr. Reagan didn't do anything in return. He was a little bit surprised. But that son continued that. Every day that he would see him, and he would hug him. And eventually, uh, Mr. Reagan got to where he would kind of hug back and wrap his arms around him a little bit. But the most touching moment came when the, brother, uh, the son told of, of one day where he walked into the house. And he was looking for his mother. She wasn't there. But he walked into his house, and his father stood up. And he said, I don't remember which one you are, but I know you're the one that hugs. And he held out his arms to hug him. Wouldn't it be great if the church in Mount Juliet was known as the church that loves? Wouldn't it be great if we lived every day as an example of a church that's loving other people? We're always showing them the truth. We're always showing them the way and the life. But we're doing it in a way that's loving. In a way that lets them know that God loves them and wants them to come into a right relationship with them. Wouldn't that be great if we could have that kind of attitude? Not only does God love the world, but... He also loves his people. And the great news about being a part of the Christian family is that no matter what kind of, of situation we might come from, no matter what kind of family situation or how our friends may have treated us, when we come into a Christian family, we know we have a loving Father that is always there for us. God loves his children. Have you ever wondered why the prodigal son parable is one of the most well-known of all the parables? Have you ever stopped and, and to think why that story of, of a son that leaves home with his inheritance goes out and blows all his money, and as soon as his money runs out, his friends do as well, and he goes and gets a job working for a while, 
uh, feeding pigs, and he gets to the point where he decides, I've got to come back home. Maybe my father will take me in as a servant. And you remember what happens when he comes in and his father greets him. Why do you think that's such a popular parable? I think the reason is that something about that strikes a chord in all of us. The idea of a faithful father that's, that's waiting on the son to come home and that goes to meet him with open arms. There's something about that I think that resonates with every human being. The idea of that love of a father. And no matter what kind of family situation we come from, we can have that love when we have a right relationship with God. One of my friends is doing some work in Japan. He's translating uh, some things for some students. He's helping students learn English. He's also assisting them as they uh, undergo some Bible studies. And he said it's so difficult at some points because there are many of his students he's encountered that had negative definitions of what a father was. They'd had negative experiences with a father before. So when he started talking about God as a loving father, it wasn't clicking for them. It wasn't making sense. Because they hadn't had good experiences with their father, and so that, that word didn't translate into what he needed it to. And they had to go back and find out what the definition of a, of a good father is, a loving father, a faithful father. We serve a perfect, faithful, and loving Father. No matter what kind of situation we're in, we know that God loves His children. And interestingly enough, as any good parent will tell you, sometimes love means discipline. And so if you would flip over to Hebrews chapter 12, and I say any good parent will tell you because I have absolutely no experience, but that's what good parents have told me. Sometimes love means discipline. And I think it's interesting that the Hebrew writer puts that in right after Hebrews chapter 11, which you'll remember is the, the hall of faith, and all these faithful heroes displayed their courage. And then in Hebrews chapter 12, the writer encourages those who are reading, not only should you take these people as examples and encouragement when you face trials, but also think about this. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 7. He says, It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards... It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. We know that no matter who we are, we experience trials in life. In fact, the passage in Matthew we just read said that it rains on the just and the unjust. And so while I don't think any of us could claim to have all the answers of why uh, bad things happen to people we know and that we love and why bad things happen to us, why we face difficult circumstances, I think Hebrews chapter 12 would be good for us to keep in mind. Perhaps if we're facing difficulties in life, that's a chance for us to be disciplined. That's a chance for us to learn. That's a chance to build our endurance. Now, obviously, we can't uh, predict exactly which situations, uh, precisely what's happening, and precisely what the desired result is. In fact, the writer himself would say, discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And I bet every one of us in this room can look back on times in our lives with the benefit of hindsight and see ways that we were disciplined by trials that we might have faced. 
Now, if we act like we have all the answers as we go through uh, suffering, as we go through pain in life, we'll probably sound a lot like Job's friends. You remember Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They had all the answers. And then at the end of the book of Job, we find out they were dead wrong. And so if we think we have all the answers, chances are our answers are somewhat like theirs, and they're probably wrong. But I think it's helpful for us to remember that sometimes the love of a father includes discipline. And so that's something to keep in mind as we see that God loves. For God so loved the world. But we also see that God loved the world and he gave his only begotten son. The God we serve is not only loving, but he's giving. Our father gives, as James would say in chapter 1 and verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above. There is nothing we have that is good, that is positive, that we've gained on our own. This afternoon, many of us were able to look around a great uh, building that we have just down the road that is now owned by the church. And the possibilities of the ways we can serve God using that facility is just, it's exciting. And I know all of us were excited about it. And did you know that there are people who have been praying for, for months, even years, about ways that, that we can find to, to expand God's work here at Mount Juliet? Specifically, even about land and ways we can expand physically. In fact, there were a lot of people who worked hard behind the scenes to make sure that, that we could enjoy such a blessing. And while all that hard work was necessary, that building is a gift from God. Everything is a blessing, a gift from God, and it's important for us to remember that. I, I think it's important for me, at least, because I often find myself with the same kind of attitude uh, that I saw just a few weeks ago in a movie, Shenandoah. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. It uh, stars Jimmy Stewart, and a quote he gives around the dinner table before he's about to pray for their meal, I think sums up the way I often feel about what the Lord has given me. His character says as they're about to pray for this meal, Lord, we cleared this land. We plowed it, sowed it, and harvested. We cooked the harvest. It wouldn't be here, and we wouldn't be eating if we hadn't done it all ourselves. We work hard for every crumb and morsel, but we thank you just the same for food we're about to eat. Amen. Don't we have that attitude sometimes? I know I struggle with that. Well, I appreciate all that I have. Uh, thank you for all this money I've been able to earn. Thank you for all of these things I've been able to accomplish. Thank you for that good grade that I was able to get because of my ability and my hard work. And while obviously it takes hard work and ability to gain those things, it's good to be reminded that every good and perfect gift we have comes from our Father. If you would please flip over to John chapter 19. Chapter 19. As we think about the scene at the cross where we visited this morning, I'd like for us to look at a few verses in which a short exchange with Jesus. You know what's happened up to this point. Jesus has been scourged, and then Pilate is beginning to get a little bit nervous. And we see that in verse 9 of John chapter 19, he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to crucify Jesus? Authority over me, unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, has the greater sin. He's letting Pilate know, uh, number one, that Judas will be held responsible for his actions, but overall, 
that he would have no authority unless it had been given to him from above. Pilate had reached a position of power and authority and probably thought he'd gotten there all. And Jesus was letting him know. You can imagine the way he would look wearing the purple robe, the crown of thorns. After he, he says, you have no authority except what is given you from above. It's important for us to remember. And we have no good blessings except what has been given to us by our Father. It's also important to remember that salvation was given by God. There's been a great deal of debate over the past few weeks over who was responsible for the death of Jesus. And as we think about one group is claiming that this group was responsible and this group was responsible, I think we would do best to let Jesus answer that question just a few chapters earlier in the book of John. In John chapter 10, in verse 17. And let's see who was really responsible for the crucifixion. John chapter 10 and verse 17, Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. It wasn't under the control of the Jewish leaders who culture at that time. It was under control of Jesus, and he was fulfilling a command from his father. He laid his life down. His will. In fact, it's precisely because he was willing to go through that that we have such a great gift. You remember the scene even in the garden as Jesus was praying for if there was possibly another way, but let not my will, but thine be done. He submits to his Father's will and lays down his life. Salvation is a gift. And if we try to play the blame game with which group is responsible, I think we've missed the point. The point is that we are all sinners and we all need the gift that was laid before us. It wasn't taken away from Jesus. He laid down his life. And so we remember that God loves us and remember that our Father gives us. And so as we think about John 3, 16... As a whole, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I think it's important for us to realize that there's a third aspect of our Father in heaven that's indicated by that, and that is our Father understands us. Not only does he, he know what we're thinking, know what we do, and we think that we can uh, hide our actions from everyone else, but he also understands what it is like to suffer. Do you know what separates our Christianity from every other world religion? That we have a God who is willing to make a sacrifice like the one we read about in the New Testament. It's interesting that one of the first false teachings that really developed uh, in the first century was trying to deny the fact that Jesus really was God because they just couldn't fathom that God would become flesh and that he would be subjected to so much disgrace and humiliation, and that he would die a death on the cross, that just couldn't be right. There, there couldn't be that kind of sacrifice. There couldn't be that kind of suffering. And I think one of the most powerful statements we can make as we face the sufferings of life is that God understands. Have you lost someone who is close to you? God understands. Have you endured a, a great deal of of pain. Well, through the sacrifice of Jesus, we see that God understands. 
Have you had friends that have turned on you? People who said they would stay with you all the way that all of a sudden were acting totally different than the way they told you they would? God understands. And while you or I might not be able to help someone who is grieving over a loss that we might not be able to relate to, we know that God understands. I think it's important for us to realize we have a Heavenly Father that loves us. We have a Father that gives us salvation. We have a Father that understands. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That's an important verse. But it's also important that we continue reading. God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. God does, God does love the world, and He did give us the opportunity for salvation. But there's something in order to accept that gift that we need to do in response. Obviously, there's nothing we can do to earn salvation. It's a gift. We've just got to open it. And here... We read in Jesus' statements to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that the way we do that is through belief. And what's interesting is that when we look through the New Testament and we see people believing in Jesus, immediately the next thing they wanted to do was submit their lives to His will. The next thing they wanted to do was to turn their lives around, to put them on in baptism and to start walking in a saved relationship with them. For God so loved the world, the invitation is open to the entire world. All we have to do is to follow it. The gift has been given to us, and all we have to do is unwrap it. As I was thinking about the unconditional love that's offered to us at the cross and the chance we have at salvation, I thought about a story that I heard years ago, and it's probably the best way to describe unconditional love that I've heard. It's a story about a young fourth-grade boy and the boy was one of those who was really excited about art, and he enjoyed drawing. In fact, he enjoyed drawing more than he did playing outside at recess or playing with his friends at PE. So oftentimes he'd just stay in the schoolroom, and he would just be drawing, and he would have his own little pictures that he would take home, and he would show his mother, and he was very proud. But as he did that, he, he didn't spend much time with the other kids in class. In fact, he didn't talk to many of them at all. And so his mother began to get a little bit worried that maybe he wasn't making friends. And so this continued throughout the year until February the 14th approached. Now, if you've ever been an elementary school student on Valentine's Day, you know what happens. Uh, people bring little cards to each other, and everyone brings a bag so they can exchange them. And so this day was going to be no different. There was going to be a big party. And all week, this young boy was making Valentine's for everyone in his class. He loved it. He was making Valentine's especially for every single person. He worked just about every spare minute he was home. And his mother began to get worried. She was wondering if the other children would remember him and if he would receive any valentines. She began to get a little nervous about it. And so as he went off to school on that day, she was thinking about it all day. She was just worried. And she said, well, what if, what if no one gives him a valentine? And then as she saw him come back, he was riding his bike home, and, and she saw him just shaking his head as he was riding his bike across the sidewalk. And so she panicked, you know, and she immediately went and, and fixed him something to drink and got out some cookies, and she wanted to do everything she could to get his mind off it when he walked in, and he was just shaking his head, and she could see from where she was standing that his bag was empty. She heard him as he rode his bike by into the garage, just saying these statements over and over again. He kept saying, not a one, not a single one. 
And so she felt terrible. And of course, any parent can understand her, her dilemma. And she's trying to figure out how to handle this. And she hears him coming to the garage. And he's saying, not a one, not a single one. And so then she opens the door. And what she expects to find is a pretty disappointed boy with an empty bag. Well, he does have an empty bag, but he's not disappointed. He looks at her and he smiles. He said, did you know I didn't forget a single one? I didn't forget a single kid in my class. They all got one. And then he went to his room. He began drawing. I didn't forget a single one. God loved the world. He didn't forget a single one. The opportunity and responsibility is ours to take advantage of that gift that's been offered. We focus this morning and this evening on the cross. And we've talked about what it means to have salvation. And if you've been thinking about that this morning or maybe this afternoon or even tonight, there's no reason to put off accepting that gift any longer. God loved the world. Christ died for the ungodly. And now we have a chance to step out of the world and into the family of God. If you want to make that decision or if there's any change that you feel needs to be made in your life, please come as we stand together and sing.